So let me uh, begin by introducing our uh, celebrity guest speaker today, who's Anne-Marie Knott. Uh, Anne-Marie is the Robert and Barbara Frick Professor in Business at uh, Washington University's Olin Business School. Uh, she previously served on the faculty at Wharton, earned her doctorate uh, at uh, UCLA, um, working under uh, Dick Rumelt and Bill McEvely, um, Bill McKelvey, sorry, uh, and um, uh, has been a uh, special issue co-editor for uh, SMJ, as well as a longstanding member of SMJ's editorial board. Uh, as you can see, I am uh, today broadcasting from the global headquarters of, the, of SNN, the Strategy News Network, uh, because I wanted to let Anne-Marie feel at home because she has so much uh, interaction with the media. <clears throat> she uh, is a columnist at Forbes uh, and has uh, done some, some work with uh, CNBC and, uh, and Wall Street Journal. So figured we'd, we'd make her feel at home by uh, having the uh, Studio 2 background here. Um, she studies uh, innovation uh, including large-scale R&D and entrepreneurship, which she views as complements. Uh, she's developed a measure of R&D effectiveness uh, called uh, the Research Quotient, or RQ, which, again, was used for CNBC in the ranking of their R&D all-stars. Anne-Marie founded uh, a, her firm, AMK Analytics, to help firms identify their optimal R&D investment and improve their R&D uh, productivity. Uh, she began her career as uh, as an engineer slash project manager in defense electronics at Hughes Aircraft Corp Corporation. So let's uh, please join me in welcoming Anne Marie now. Okay. Uh, let's see, Anne Marie, you're muted, so we got. I just saw that. Yes. Thank you, Rich. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> yes. Right. So we don't we don't get to hear the clapping because of all because of me to mute most people, but. Uh, let me, uh, let me unshare the screen. Good, okay. So, um, so thanks very much for joining us, Emory. I really appreciate it. Uh, and uh, really glad that you could be part of this series of uh, virtual campus visits. Um, so, you know, I like to start off these interviews by saying, uh, and, and I'm sure my colleagues are tired of me hear, hearing me say this, but it never gets old, uh, to me at least, that I, I've never yet heard a 10-year-old say, Mommy, I really want to be a strategy professor when I grow up. <laughs> uh, that, that, is a, that is a line that has never been spoken uh, in the history of the world. And so I figure that most of us have uh, kind of an indirect pathway that gets us into this career. Uh, and so I was going to invite you to tell us a little bit about what that pathway was for you, because I know that... Uh, it was, uh, at least uh, for you, somewhat indirect, you having been an actual rocket scientist. Uh, and uh, so maybe tell us a little bit about what led you to this crazy career we call strategy professor. What's a, what's a nice engineer like you doing in a field like this? <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I was working at Hughes. I went back and got my MBA because I wanted to run a program. Um, 
and I loved it. I remember having tears in my eyes when the, the program ended. <laughs> um, and so I decided to go back and get my PhD. So I did get to run a program. That was exciting. Um, I decided to go back and get my PhD because a lot of my colleagues had PhDs in science and engineering, and they were teaching at UC, UCLA or USC at night. Uh, so that was my goal. I was going to teach at USC or UCLA at night. Um, so what I continued to work at Hughes. Um, and what ended up happening is our company got bought by General Motors and they moved my group to Tucson and I said, academia, here I come. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah. So that convinced you to join a PhD program, I guess? No, no, I was already in the PhD oh, program. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So the thought I was, yeah. So I was working on, I was working on doing the PhD, thinking I would just teach at night. And, um, but when they moved us, so that was like three years in. And so mm -hmm. then I just became an academic full-time. Okay. Well, good. I'm glad you made that decision. You've all benefited from it greatly. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, so, uh, uh, why, why strategy though? Why did you pick a strategy as the field to go into? Oh, that was easy. When I did the MBA, I did a self-designed strategy major. They didn't actually have one, but I took okay. marketing strategy, ops strategy, strategy, strategy. Um, yeah, I, I was inside firms, right? Decision-making strategies about decision-making, right? So. Okay. So that's what attracted you to the field is the focus yeah. on decision-making? Yeah. Yeah. And I can imagine that uh, given your experience as a program manager, that would be important. Was there something else about the, you know, your experience at uh, in at Hughes or anywhere else that that made strategy important to you? Oh, everything I was doing at the company was kind of strategic, right? So they would call me in after I did the MBA. They would call me in to solve different kinds of problems. They were always strategic problems. And one that was fun. Well, this would go on for it become a very long story, but um, the government changed the way that they were doing acquisition. They were going to do something called second sourcing. So mm -hmm. previously what you would do is you would be, have a development contract and then you would have the rights for all the production. And they decided that they were spending too much money. Um, so they were going to give uh, your drawings to another company. Mm. Um, and the way they would decide who got to build how many was, based, was uh, somebody's dissertation. And so they asked me to come up with the initial bid. How fun is that, right? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, I remember um, seeing a, <clears throat> I guess this is probably related. I remember seeing a, um, a show about the, uh, the shootout, the design shootout for the, I think it was for the F-22 uh, between Boeing and uh, Lockheed, I guess, at the time. Yeah. And uh, I forget can't remember which side won and which side lost. I think Boeing lost that one, right? But they. I don't remember. Yeah. But, yeah, but I remember the documentary saying that you know they got the consolation prize of being able to build a certain number of them or something. Like yeah, that's yes, because previously you would win that competition, the shootout, and then you'd get to produce from then on. Interesting. Interesting. But the satisfying thing is they got the bulk of the the buy which I was upset about, but we can go into that another time. Uh, but when they shot the missiles, they died as soon as they hit the launch poles. <laughs> so it's one thing to get somebody's drawing. It's to actually another thing to be able to figure out why the drawings are doing what they're doing. <laughs> right. And how to actually manufacture it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, I noticed, I, ne I had never noticed this before, but uh, you, you earned your bachelor's in mathematics at Utah. Yeah. Has that informed anything that you've done? 
that got me my job. But yeah, I mean, you you know my stuff. My stuff's pretty mathematical. You'll see it when we yeah, true. You'll see it when we get to the talk. True. Okay. Yeah, and uh, some people have actually characterized what I did as knowledge physics, right? Okay. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, your uh, tell me a little bit about the process that you went through to find a topic for your dissertation. What was that like? Uh, well, have, obviously, PhD students will like this story, and I've, yeah. told, uh, I've told it to others. But um, so I failed my major field exam, <laughs> which meant that you got to sit in a room with all your committee, right? So this is Dick Rumeld, Richard Rumeld now, um, Bill McKelvey, uh, Marvin Lieberman, and uh, Steve Postrel. And, um, you know, they, they give me the news first off. And, you know, you're just so embarrassed, humiliated, everything. Um, and they're saying, well, we don't think you're quite cooked yet. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> and they said, well, we, we, we actually can't figure out what you're interested in. And I said, well, I want to build a model where the government, when it, I, I think the problem is the government doesn't understand how firms behave. So I want to build a model so that when the government they, makes their decisions about, you know, how to do things that they ac accurately capture what firms will do. And Dick Rommel says, well, Anne-Marie, when I was at JPL, y'all wanted to build a model of the world, but in the end, all you have is a model of the world. <laughs> okay, not that. <laughs> um, so I, that was the non-answer to your question. The answer to your question is that, um, you know, the resource-based view was big at the time, right? right? And, you know, one of the main tenets of it is that um, uh, the, the valuable resource has to be inimitable. And I was sitting, I'd gone to an academy of management, I was sitting at the airport in the food court, and I'm looking around at all these franchises, and I said, wait a second. I said, what's valuable in the franchise is a routine, right? It clearly isn't inimitable, or you wouldn't be able to create a franchise. Right. <laughs> so what is it that's sustaining the value? And then I, you know, I told that to the same committee, and you know, then their eyes each lit up. So then I went, oh, okay, now I've got a topic. Mm -hmm. Good. Okay, that's an interesting story. So, so um, yeah, and uh, you know, the the usual question I ask as a follow up, and I'm not sure it applies in this case, right? Because usually I ask, well, my my doctoral students sometimes have an easy time finding a dissertation topic, but have a difficult time narrowing it down to a specific research question. Yeah. And so, how did you know, I usually ask, how did you go through that process of narrowing down the topic to a question? But it sounds like the question popped in maybe yeah. even before the topic. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm very, all of my stuff is seeing some disconnect, mm -hmm. right? And that always is a question. So the disconnect is either between two theories, between theory and empirics, or between two set of empirics. Right, you know, okay. Basically, I say something's not right here. Right, right. Yeah, that is the common theme. So, um, okay, so what were, the, what were the challenges that you faced in doing your dissertation? I'm sure my current dissertation students want to hear about this. Uh, what, were the, um, what were the biggest challenges? Was it, uh, you know, conceptual or data or analysis or writing, framing? What, what, what did you... Uh, oh, it seems easy now, right? I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. 
as a first time researcher, what were you struggling with? Uh, the question was easy, right? And you know, I'd worked in industry, so my, my first step whenever I write a paper is to do the PowerPoints, right? You know, to tell the whole story, right? It's uh -huh. the, um, and, you know, once so you get framing point, comes naturally to you. Yeah, framing comes naturally to me. Um, uh, and I also teach this in MBA classes too. Is that the, start by the di you know the diagram or the chart or the table that you expect to get if everything works out, and then work backwards from that. Um, so that was straightforward. Um, the first paper, yeah. So the the first paper. So the dissertation was called "Do Managers Matter." And right. when I describe it to you, you'll see that it's going to seem really familiar to something else you've seen with the exact same title. <laughs> uh, yeah, so what I wanted to do, so what I did was I was comparing uh, franchisees to independents. Right. And in order to do that, I had to see how their routines differ, right? So I went through the whole, I mean, it was a lot of work, which is your dissertation should be, but I, I had operations manuals for the franchisees and went through them, you know, 500 page manuals to try to characterize what I thought were the essential elements of the routine. Um, and um, created a survey of that, mm -hmm. distributed to franchisees and independents and, and saw, you know, the so the first question is, um, uh, are you, do you follow this routine? No, are you right. aware of it? Um, do you follow it? Um, and uh, do you think it's valuable? So actually the, the last two were reversed. Um, and then what I did from that, I also collected financial data. So I built their production function. <laughs> and right. I measured the distance to the frontier, which would now be called the TFP. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I related the TFP to the differences in their practices. So, uh, yeah, right. so we right. could actually, so, extend. yeah. This was, the, this was the quick printing paper? Yeah, well, there's, okay. there, there ended up being three. Right. Um, Hold on, just one second. Just one second. Uh, how do you want to tie? Just like, I'm sorry. Yes. How do you want? Just like that, right? Mm -hmm. okay. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Do we get a vote? Yeah. So the big thing, yeah. So the two th two things were um, going through all those manuals, right? And right. then this was back in the day where surveys were mailed. Right. Right. So you know the printing it, the mailing it, the waiting to see if anybody sends it back, all that stuff. Postage, everything, looking yeah. envelopes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> what uh, what led you to that particular industry, that particular franchise? Oh, that my dad had had a, when I was a senior in high school, he bought a, print, a quick printing thing. So, okay. Yeah, so uh, I knew that industry, worked in his shop many, many days. <laughs> okay, and was he, he, was he a franchisee, or was he an no, independent? Uh -uh. No, he was independent, he bought an existing, um, bought an existing thing. He, mm -hmm. in, he was looking for a job, was going to get his resume printed, went into what was called, you know, instant printing. Right. <laughs> you know, he says, you know, I want to get copies of my resume. And they said, well, it'll be like three days. He said, it's called instant. <laughs> 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 he said, so there's definitely opportunity here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. So uh, what... Uh, how did just out of curiosity then uh where if he's not a if he was not a franchisee where did he get his routines from well he just bought the company no. okay it's kind of like the do you know the is it um what's the pizza franchise domino's so uh -huh. did the, what that's the one in michigan so what the guys did was they bought um and not um a pizza place in michigan 
and it wasn't doing very well. But in the process of figuring out why it doesn't do very well, then you get a really nice sense of how to redesign the routine. You don't really learn much if it's already working well. Right. Okay. So did he, but, but in your father's case, it was working well, I guess. No, no, no. When he bought it, it was just okay. Remember? Cause they told him it was right. going to be three days to get his. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he made an impact on, on the, on the routines yeah. there. Yeah. 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 He was, he was an engineer. That's where he got it from. Ah, okay. Okay. Well, this is interesting. Um, oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning more about this because honestly, that really is one of my favorite papers in the whole field. Yeah, is that the the, the uh, factor market paradox, uh, factor market routines paradox paper. I'm so sure I'm getting those words. Ahead. I'm getting those words jumbled up there. No, but no, no, that's good. They're, they're all in the title of the paper somewhere. And I, I assign that paper every time I teach a doctoral Thank uh, you. It's a terrific paper. And uh, I do like, there's so much to like about it. You know, the, the meticulousness of the, uh, of the data collection, uh, the care, the, the detailed grounded understanding of the industry setting, and just the incredible counterintuitiveness of the results. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's beautiful. I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful piece of work. That's um, so sweet. Thank you. And so I, I looked it up this morning, and it is actually your best-cited paper on, on Google, that, to Google Scholar. Yeah. yeah, I'm not very highly cited. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's up there in the, I don't know, maybe about 300 citations or something yeah. like that. But it's, uh, it, it, it deserves to be, however many times it's cited, it deserves to be cited more because it's an excellent paper. And uh, I recommend it to all my students. Um, so, okay, so what, so what, what happened next? Uh, how did you get from, from that um, project to your, your research stream? How did you develop a research stream out of that project? Oh, well, or for, or uh, was second, away from yeah, so the paper we just talked about is the first paper. Um, so, so I was, the second paper was the one where I look at what happens after somebody leaves the franchise, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of, the, that was the, I wanted it to be the dynamic value of management, but organization, organization said it wasn't the dynamic value of management. They made me change the title. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, uh, yeah, but the idea for that came from, so I was claiming that you know, I had found how, you know, that managers matter. And then okay. the idea came from, no, I know it did. I was at the Academy or SMS talking to, uh, Dartmouth, Connie's colleague. Um, Margie. Margie, yeah. And Margie said something about, well, something about the dynamic. And then, and then I, the idea occurred to me that um, I could look at what happens after they leave, right? Mm. Yeah, do you know that paper? Um, <laughs> it's yeah, been so a while. So yeah, remind us. So, so uh, it was cool. There was, there, usually you can't leave a franchise, but there was some kind of lawsuit um, and what everybody who's in a franchise, it seems as though they get in principally to learn the routine. And then afterwards they think that they can get by without the franchise or, yeah, right. Uh, and so what ends up, ha what I was able to see was that, um, you know, and then if they do, then, you know, they capture all the royalties that they were paying the franchise or, yes. um, but what, and what ends up happening and that reinforces the idea in the first paper is that over time their routine 
decays to what the um, independence routine is, mm -hmm. but they don't capture that anymore. So because right, they're no longer under the discipline. That's right. Yeah. Of the of the franchise. No, so I, I have to thank Margie for that. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I mean, you know, the and so that paper I think reinforces the first paper, which you know basically comes to the conclusion that hey, it's not so much the knowledge, it's the discipline. Yeah. yeah, and that was, yeah, that, that was fun, right? You know, and actually, you know, it's not that big in our field, right? Pardon? Discipline's not that big in our field. No, right? you're right. Yeah, we, we could have a discipline-based view of the firm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, that, yeah, that is what managed in principle. Yeah, so actually, you know what I was thinking the other day? I was actually thinking about this paper of yours, and um, it occurred to me that, you know, maybe the, these results are the outcome of a separating equilibrium in some sense, right? You know, the, uh, you yeah. know right, that the, yeah. there's a separating equilibrium that separates out the independents from the franchisees on the basis of maybe who's more amenable to following instructions. Yeah. You know, That's right. uh, if, if I have a kind of a lower either psychological cost or, or, uh, or maybe even material cost for financial cost for following instructions, uh, will, greater willingness to follow instructions, then I'll yeah. separate out into, into the, um, you know, the franchisee category as opposed to the independent category. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, so that in some sense, a franchise agreement serves a similar function to a, um, to an insurance deductible, <laughs> right? Okay, say more. Similar, right? Because that's what the, the purpose of the insurance oh, deductible is to separate out the, yeah, yeah, yeah. the good risks from the bad risks. Okay. All right, yeah, so we should talk right. more about this. Right? Yeah, I thought the I think that might be an interesting paper to write there. Right, no, there is. Another, there's, the, there's another thought in the back of my mind on this too that has to do with um, the franchisor exploiting overconfidence on the part of the. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, but if the but if the if the entrepreneur is overconfident, wouldn't they want to be more of an independent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I need to think more about it. <laughs> so actually, and that may be a benefit to the franchisor as well, is that it screens out the overconfident entrepreneurs. Right, the ones that are minimal, which gets back to your separate. Right? Yeah, the ones who who think they know it all already. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. So I think I. I think there's something to be said there about maybe the profits of, right? Because if we take seriously, the, you know, your result that, that in effect, the extra value creation for a franchisee is due to the discipline of the franchisor, then, you know, some portion of that extra profit, the extra value is being captured by the franchisor. So Royalty. they're being, being yeah. paid in effect to be a disciplinarian and, um, you know, there's, there's, I, I, there's a paper there. I'm sure I'm not quite, haven't quite put my finger on what it is, but I All think right. there's an interesting theory paper there. Now see if we were able to have those one-on-one -on -one discussions. Like, <laughs> Well, you know, you have my phone number, so that's true. That's true. We, we can do that offline. Yeah. We don't have to do it as part of the seminar. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So, so that led you to the, to the second paper. But you've you've taken that and and blown it up into a much larger stream of research on these topics of of R and D and entrepreneurship and um, and so tell us a little bit about how you've 
I've developed a, a more of a long-term research program that got you past those initial studies. So um, re remember that my real interests, so once you get the dissertation out of the way, <laughs> then you can go back to what you care about, right? <laughs> exactly. Right, and so what I really cared about was, um, you know, this stuff inside, the stuff inside Hughes, right? Which was, and I'll tell the story when I talk about the paper, but um, uh, when General Motors bought us, uh, they started changing things. I'm going, oh, this is stupid. This is the C students telling the A students how to do the R&D. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is going to permanently degrade our R&D capability. Um, but nobody, you know, no, you couldn't communicate that to anybody. Nobody else was concerned like I was because there's, there wasn't a measure of R&D capability. Mm. So that'll motivate the talk today. Uh, so that was kind of my holy grail. The first paper, uh, you know, so... The paper that kicks that off is, so, well, there'd be multiple steps. So one step is uh, Rebecca Henderson was, when I was a PhD student, was presenting that paper with um, uh, Kim Clark, right? Okay. No, no, the one with- um, Coburn? Yeah, Coburn, the Flexible Managerial Integration Processes. Okay. Yeah. Um, and they were looking inside pharma firms. And um, I said, well, well, why would you use a firm fixed effect to capture this? I said, why wouldn't you use the exponent on R&D? Uh, she said, we, you know, there weren't enough degrees of freedom, but you know, the intuition for the measure that I ultimately use you know, mm -hmm. came that early. And honestly, well, it came when I was in a Hughes, honestly. Uh, uh, what was I? Oh, anyway, so I had that in the back of my mind, but I wasn't going to do anything with it head on. And then, um, you know, I'd always liked that absorptive capacity paper. Mm -hmm. There's actually two papers, right? Um, right. And, there's, the, there's the ASQ version, and I think the economic journal version. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the empirical, the empirical results that goes along with that is that if you so the basic story is that the more you spend on r d the more you benefit from spillovers right right okay and i just said at, at first i just love that idea you know everybody the the notion of a sort of capacity is really powerful because you know you can't learn calculus until you know algebra right right um, but uh it occurred to me that 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 result can't be right that it can't be the case that spending more on R&D gets you more benefit from spillovers because the people who spend the most on R&D are at the frontier and the people, you know, and so everybody else is interior to them. <laughs> so right. then it occurred to me that that was just an empirical artifact, um, that what was happening is that firms must be diff must differ in their R&D capability, which I knew from industry. I mean, I told you I knew who the A students were and the C students were. <laughs> right. Um, and that what ha what's happening is that the that the artifact, the artifact, this interaction term being significant, was uh, due to the fact that we hadn't accounted for um, differences in companies' R and D capability, mm -hmm. and that um, and that once you did that, then you would find that the interactive term becomes insignificant, which is that paper. <laughs> okay, so basically, R Q kills uh, kills A C. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then, and then after I'd written that paper, I went, oh my God, the thing that I just used as the control is actually this holy grail that I'd been after. Mm. So tell us a little bit more about what you've done with that then. That uh, you've, you've uh, gotten this good. holy grail. Yeah. So again, this, the paper will be related to this. So um, 
the, the first thing that I did was, you know, I had all this date, all CompuStat data going back as many years as you have financial data. So I had it going back to 72 for all publicly traded firms, the measure. Um, and so I plotted it and discovered that it had declined 65%. Mm. Uh, and so basically since then I spend all my time trying to figure out why, because, you know, innovation is the engine of economic growth and we'll talk about that in the paper. Um, so if we can restore companies R and D productivity, we ought to be able to revive economic, economic right. growth. And I'm guessing that that leads into your interest in entrepreneurship because you know, you're not going to capture that piece of, uh, of research capability. If you're looking at, publicly traded firms, you're going to be missing the whole piece of research capability uh, among the non-publicly traded. Yeah, no, that, that would make sense. No, the interest in entrepreneurs. So the entrepreneurship thing came because the franchisees and the independents were mm -hmm. entrepreneurs, right? So when I was on the market, I was thinking of myself as a strategy person. And when I gave the talk at Wharton, um, the entrepreneurship folks said, would you be interested in a in a job in entrepreneurship, you know, because they said, that's entrepreneurship. I went, oh, okay. And so mm -hmm. once you start teaching stuff, then you, then you end up doing some research. But yeah, I think of the two as compliments. Well, do you think that that 70% decline in RQ is, is due in part to the shift of, of uh, R&D to startups in some sense or uh -huh. no? Okay. No, no, no. There's actually been, yeah. So I've got lots of things in my head, but, um, the uh, it turns out the source of most internet companies will be different, right? Because you know you didn't need there were lots of things you didn't need to start those. But um, most tech companies are founded by people who work inside another tech company, right? right. And they had, a, they had a project that they were working on. The firm that they were working for just cancel, cancels it because it 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 either doesn't fit with they, what the firm does or it doesn't fit you know it doesn't have a scale adequate to make it worthwhile business for them to be going into right um and so uh the number of startups has declined over time i don't know if you know that and i think the reason the startups have declined is because you know if the large firms are less productive then they're generating fewer founders uh okay i guess that makes sense yeah so is it that uh well, you'll probably tell us later in the paper, but I was going to just speculate, is it that the research capabilities left the country or is it the... Nope. Nope. <laughs> around the world. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, um, okay. So given that this is your topic of, you know, research capability, right? My, what do you think is the most unimportant, I'm sorry, unimportant, the most important I got my two words reversed. I was going to ask the most important unanswered question, uh, not the most unimportant. The, what, what do you think is the most, what, what do you think are the most important unanswered questions about R&D capability at this point in the development of the field? What don't we know about R&D capability that we really ought to know? Well, those are the things I would be working on, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, presumably not alone. Pardon? Presumably not alone, right? There's, there may be more to it than just what no, you No, no, but I mean, the ones that I can identify, I'm kind of working on. So, you know, there's, I'll tell you the things that I'm working on, right? So um, I'm working uh, with Natalia at Wharton on uh, something that everybody believes might contribute to the decline, which is the um, fact that central labs have closed. You know, there's mm. anecdotal 
all anecdotal evidence that they've closed. Uh, so we want to actually do a census to find out whether that's true and then find out why and, and then assess what the impact is. Um, okay. So, so that's one. Okay, cool. Any other, any other things that you think are, are going to be important upcoming research topics? Well, the, the one that I was, the other one that I was alluded to when we were talking about the startups is, you know, is, can you show, so they call this declining dynamism, right? Mm -hmm. the, the lower rate of foundings. Um, and um, yeah, so I think looking into that would be important. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So these different types of historical trends that you're seeing are yeah. really what interest you. Okay. Yeah. Looking at the long-term trends in, in R&D. Nice. Okay. Um, okay. So let's see. What do you, give, us, uh, give us the benefit of your wisdom. What, what lessons have you learned about doing research? That, um, that my, my doctoral students and junior colleagues could benefit from. <laughs> I'm too old to change my ways at this point that anyway, so you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but maybe, maybe some of my junior colleagues could benefit from, from you know, any observations that you've, you've made about uh, lessons learned in terms of, uh, of uh, doing, doing research. And those could be lessons learned the hard way uh, through your own uh, uh, challenges or maybe lessons that you've learned by observing others or whatever. So I, my sister shared this with me. So she was talking to my son about um, some kind of surgery and, you know, apparently it's some kind of hand surgery. He's a hand surgeon. And um, uh, he advocates doing it one way and the norm is for people to do it another way. And he said to my sister, he said, but it's really hard to tell people they're wrong. He said, but my mom seems to have made a career of it. <laughs> right. By the way, I should mention to everybody, so Anne-Marie's son is a doctor. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so he, he knows what he's talking about, I presume. <laughs> well, and he does academic medicine, right? So yes. it kind of, it's fun. Um, it's periodically, I get to help him with stats, but that's about it. Uh, yeah, so first, it's not really the the problem is I told you up front that um, what I what I identify paper opportunities by disconnects right and right. by very nature disconnects are going to mean somebody's wrong at least yes. level. either they're missing something or right um, so it's hard to get things published when you're showing somebody that they're wrong because who's it going to go to for review right exactly. <laughs> Uh, so I don't, you know, so I would say, do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you handle that pushback? I mean, obviously you've managed you, to, awesome. you haven't let it stop you, you know, and uh, maybe it slowed you down a little bit, but obviously you've, you've built up a great career and, uh, you know, a great research performance record. So, you know, clearly you've been able somehow to push through the pushback that you've gotten. Tell us a little bit about what you've learned about how to do that. Oh, I haven't do it. I often at an academy do a session, just an academy or SMS, or on, on a panel where they, you know, give advice to junior faculty and stuff. <laughs> uh, what, one thing people don't realize. So, so one thing is um, you can push back with the editor. Right? It's a lot easier to do that if you have a senior co-author. So I would strongly encourage 
fact, junior faculty to have senior co-authors, right? Okay. It, it, just continue the apprenticeship process that you had as a PhD student, right? Because uh, the advantage of having a senior co-author is one, um, they, you know, they know how to get paper, they know how to write papers. Two, they, you, we have to admit this, Rich, you get the benefit of the doubt in the review process for the most part, right? Mm -hmm. the, yeah, I guess so. Right, they'll give you the better reviewers and all that. Um, so you get that benefit. And three, they're more likely to get invited to give talks. And when they give the talk, they'll be giving your paper. So um, they'll be talking, which is important for the letter writers. Right. Um, okay, so that would be one piece of advice. But um, was, I think it had another, maybe it'll come back to me if you. Okay. So you, but you've, you've learned a way to, to tell people that they're wrong, as your son says, and get away with it. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I don't get it. You know, these papers are not cited, as you know, they're not very highly cited. So, um, they're, yeah. Yeah. But, oh, no, I know what I was going to say. This is a fabulous career, right? I mean, it doesn't matter. I to like me. it. Yeah. It doesn't matter to me in some sense, whether I get cited or not. I mean, I get paid to identify problems I think are fundamentally interesting and to dig into them and try to solve them. Um, mm -hmm. It's just fabulous. As I tell people, it beats working for a living. <laughs> it's, no, it's working. I, you know, I used to, you know, that was, this will get back to my son again, but you know, my mantra used to be, I only work two days a week, four months a year. And he goes, I'm so sick of hearing that. And he says, it's absolutely not true. He goes, you work far more now than you did when you were at Hughes. And I, as you can imagine, was working pretty hard at Hughes as well. Right, right. Yeah, that's true. I know it's true. I never, I, I, there's never a time when, when I'm leaving my work behind. It's always there with me. It's always right there on my shoulder, whispering in my ear. <sighs> Usually whispering insults. Yeah. <laughs> no, don't do that. <laughs> so... Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. Um, so if you were, if you were starting it all over as a new doctoral student today, is there anything you would do differently? No. No. Okay. No, 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 no. UCLA was a tough place just because nobody was writing at the time. <laughs> so we didn't learn the crap, but they were just really smart people. If you work with really smart people, you can figure it out. Okay. Um, and I, I noticed that, you know, of course you've, you've mentored a lot of, you know, really, uh, successful people in the field. Um, Brian Wu, Hart Posen, Ishan Guler, Christina Fang. Um, well, you know, I, Christina and Ishan, well, I mean, that they were, I was on their committee, but I wasn't. Well, but you played a role in helping yeah. them along, right? Yeah. Um, no, I, I love students. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about how you work with doctoral students. I could learn from this. <laughs> uh, well, it's the, you know, it starts when you have the P so this was, I wasn't teaching PhDs at Wharton, but, um, Oh, well, I'll tell a fun story. I guess this, I might have saved this for the students, but, um, when I was at Wharton, there were, uh, more faculty than PhD students. And so the, the students got to, pick who what faculty they want to work with which you know in, in essence that happens anyway but um you know Hart Posen kept coming back to me and we had like three meetings and and then at the end of the third meeting he said um well I decided I wanted to work with you and I go well the most the most exciting thing about that is that this whole speed dating thing is over 
<laughs> yeah. Um, but no, so, so that was, it's, it's easiest when you teach the seminar, because what you do in the seminar each week is uh, you assign, you know, you do a bunch of readings, and my assignment is typically identify some question that, you know, services from the reading, something that doesn't make sense, right? Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately, one of those typically turns into a paper, and that's how I end up working with the student. Right. So, yeah, I have a really exciting one. Well, she's actually, I think officially she's a dance student, but um, it, it grew out of my class. Uh, um, Ming Wang is uh, redoing the Remelt 19, that uh, how much does industry matter paper? Okay. Yeah, because people, is it, that's the one I'm talking about, right? Everybody was upset about the corporate effect, right? So right. his thing was showing that you know, basically that quarter was wrong or that, <laughs> right? Yes. Okay. Uh, that industry doesn't matter that much. That was his, that's what he cared about. Uh, you know, in much more action within, within industry than there is across industry. Um, but people took the result that corporate was insignificant uh, personally, the corporate strategy. <laughs> and, you know, later results end up saying that the, the, that there is a significant corporate effect. And, um, you know, so Ming's paper is looking to see whether that is, um, is that because people, you know, somebody was doing the methods wrong or what? And her basic story is no, it's changing over time, that there was no significant corporate effect back at the time that Rommelt did his paper because that was when the um, antitrust regime precluded you from being in related businesses. Mm -hmm. Hey, that's that's a plausible explanation. I, I could I could buy that. the The thing that occurs to me always about the corporate, the small corporate effect in variance decomposition, is that that way of measuring the corporate effect um, is based on a presumption of a specific way that the corporation should influence performance, which is to raise all you know, rising tide, raising all boats, right? When, you know, what we teach in our MBA classes is that, uh, you know, you have to make, <clears throat> um, at the corporate level, there are trade-offs to be made, right? You have to, you cannot get the maximum value out of a full set of, a full portfolio of businesses by simply having each of them maximizing their own individual performance, Somebody, in order to create synergies, some business unit has to make sacrifices for the greater good of the whole, right? That's the whole purpose of, you know, that's what our theory says. And uh, that's not going to be captured in the rising tide lifting all boats, no, right? right? Yeah. It's going to be lowering some boats for the sake of really dramatically rising others, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so find it. If you find a corporate effect with, you know, measuring it in that way, then you're actually, on the true corporate effect is going to be larger. Yeah, right. So I think that's part of why, you know, the, the quote unquote measured corporate effect is so low is because people are doing, you know, companies are doing what they should be doing, which is sub-optimizing the performance of some business units in order to, you know, dramatically increase the performance of others. Uh, which is not going to be, and especially if you put equal weighting on all the business units, is not going to show up in that way of me measuring it through variance decomposition. 
So um, we do want to give you a chance to uh, to uh, move on to the, the presentation, but I did want to conclude with one last question, which is, you know, given that you've had, you've, you've worked with so many uh, interesting and successful doctoral students, what's the most important piece of advice that you give your own doctoral students? Well, there's heterogeneity across students. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. Let me, I'll think about that when I get to meet with the students later. Maybe I'll, I'll Okay, talk. fair enough, fair enough. You can think about what are the contingency factors that might uh, <laughs> Lead, lead you to give different pieces of advice to different students. Yeah. Okay, so uh, everybody please join me in thanking Anne-Marie for putting up with our, uh, our odd, um, you know, uh, celebrity talk show ritual. We really appreciate it, and I think the, the students above everybody else uh, benefit greatly from this. Oh, that's the fact. I appreciate it. Great questions. Thanks. Thanks.